International. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Listening Room. Uh, this is a live storytelling podcast uh, recorded at Genuine Joe's Coffee House the second Saturday of every month here in Austin, Texas. My name's Joey Zimmerman. Uh, thanks for coming into this episode. We have a lovely lineup of very talented people on this episode. We have uh, Nathan Ehrman. He runs a monthly, uh, weekly show, actually, every single Thursday at the Hops and Grains Brewery. Um, Paul Normandon was the co-producer of Testify, a storytelling show that happens at the Spider House Ballroom. Daniel Rugg Webb, a uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, human and comedian, just moved out to L.A. Uh, wish him the best of luck. Rob Gagnon, you can catch uh, Sandbox. That happens every single Tuesday down at the New Movement Theater. And Roxy Castillo, what a uh, brilliant, talented uh, improviser, actor, <laughs> actress, comedian burlesque everything catch her everywhere and she's all over the place um thank you guys so much for peeping the episode and enjoy yeah bye bye Um, 
me and my ex-girlfriend at the time took a trip to Miami. Being not together at the time, taking the trip. Uh, what had happened was uh, she got the trip, the tickets for the plane, and also paid for a snorkeling expedition uh, down in Key Largo. She got that for me for Christmas. And I got her, uh, I forgot, I forgot to get her anything at all. I was definitely a shitty human being, kind of only thinking about myself. Um, so that's where the breakup happened. And then we stopped talking, and then we're like, oh wait, I forgot about these tickets to Key Largo and snorkeling for like a week. Uh, you still want to go? And it's like, yeah, I think we can be adults and uh, be able to have this experience together. Um, so we decided to go. Uh, this, we both lived in Lincoln at the time. We had to drive up to Omaha. We flew out of uh, Epley um, the next morning. And I get in the car with her to drive from Lincoln to Omaha after not seeing her for like five days. And the whole car, it's like an hour from Lincoln to Omaha. And the whole car ride is just silent. Just silent and so bad. I'm like, if this is any premonition of what's going to happen for this trip, we could be in some, some hot water. Uh, so we, we drive all the way, go to Omaha, go to her parents' place, uh, or her mom's place. Uh, I'm expecting to get in there and like just get situated on the couch or whatever. Uh, but she's like, hey, Joe, how's it going? So nice to see you. She leads us upstairs, and she's like, you guys can just stay in the guest room for the night. And I was like, but we're, and my girl ex stops me at the time. And then she leaves, and she's like, yeah, I haven't told my parents yet. I'm like, we've been separated for months now. I'm kind of living out of my car, and uh, we're crashing with some friends, and you haven't even told your parents yet? Uh, so we stayed in the same bed um, that night, and she's like, uh, you know, this is just going to be a friend thing, or this experience that we're going to have uh, when we take our trip, so let's just try to get most of it as we can. I'm like, okay, sounds good. Next day, I go to the airport. As soon as we clear, like, everything in the airport, and, like, sit down and wait, she's, like, sitting next to me, and like cuddling on me and like holding me as if like I don't know as if we're starting to be like different people on this trip as if uh, you know we're not gonna like be whatever it is here in Nebraska it's like vacation time is like a, a limbo world where I guess I'm, I'm back in time or something because that started to happen we were like kissing each other and just being with each other as if uh, like none of this had happened uh, so it's it's like it, I feel like uh, I'm in I'm back in this relationship or romance, but it's only for like a week or so. Um, and we get we fly down there. It's nice. She rented like this Airbnb. She really thought this whole thing out. She like took my like driver's license when I wasn't looking, so she could like rent a car online and to like think that I never even got her like anything. Um, it's definitely a, a who I was at that time of uh, really just kind of thinking about myself and not really caring too much about other people, especially the people who I put like very close in my life. Uh, so she planned out she planned out this great trip uh, where you go by the beach and we're, we're swimming, having a good time. Except right when we first got there, I lost like my 60 gig iPod on the bus. It's just like, oh, it's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. It's packed. I almost had that thing full of music and podcasts and it, it fell off of my pants at our stop on the bus in between like this metal seat and then she got off and left and then I was 
on the bus still trying to find my iPod, and then the door shut, and it drove away, and she's like, where'd you go? So for the first day there, I, I missed her for a couple hours. I tried to find my iPod on the bus, but did not happen. <laughs> so that's, uh, someone might have a really good iPod somewhere with a lot of pretty good uh, screamo music from early 2000s. <laughs> It'd be a good find. Um, so we hang out at the beach. This is also at the time where uh, I had got uh, little lengthy little dreadlocks. Um, I was a real idiot. I was a big old dummy. So I was swimming in this like salt water. These things were getting so gross. It was, uh, yeah, it was bad. It was bad from the get-go. It was a bad time. Um, but one of what we wanted to do, our main thing there, was to go snorkeling, go down to Key, Key Largo, rented a car, and drove down there. Um, still, as we were going out in public, like holding hands, like kissing each other, taking each other on dates, uh, just like this like weird alternate reality. Um, so we get to the snorkeling place, and we get we get our snorkeling guide is George. Uh, George has a big old Grateful Dead tattoo skull like right on his calf. I'm like, good. If anyone's gonna kind of tell me how to <laughs> try to snorkel and save my life, I'm glad it's. I hope it's the dude who's tried LSD a couple times in his life <laughs> so, so he can help me out if I'm struggling. Um, and we we go, we take the boat uh, off the land, and uh, it's beautiful. It's an amazing time. While we're swimming, we saw like uh, an underwater statue of Jesus underground, uh, some jellyfish, barracudas. At one point, I was having like a little, little trouble, like swallowing some seawater, and I was kind of like freaking out, like not doing it right. And then George, the guy, goes, "Hey man, just go with the flow. Stop fighting it." And then I eased up and I started doing it, and I was like, "Oh my God, it is just like LSD." Advice <laughs> all the time. But then I, I eventually I got tired. Uh, and it was hard for me to like keep up with them as they were like going fast with their little fins on their feet. I was struggling with that. And uh, my ex at the time ended up like she was a very strong swimmer. She used to be a lifeguard. She would like take me by the hand and like I could see with my goggles she was like leading me as I was like trying to help kick. And it felt like a metaphor. Of, like that's what she was kind of been doing this entire relationship uh, when I was living with her. Because I was leaving clothes everywhere, dirty dishes everywhere. Half the time I was even shitting in the toilet and I wasn't even flushing it. Like what was I? <laughs> I was not familiar. Um, so I had that feeling of like this. Uh, she's been leading me this whole time. I really haven't been taking care of myself. So yeah, I was like around 120 pounds at that time. That was like two years ago. Definitely wasn't even eating right or like taking care of myself at all. Um, so having that moment as she was leading me, I was thinking about uh, bettering myself, things I need to do. Um, the snorkeling trip got done, sat on the boat, and the whole time going back to see George guy kept telling us how like uh, how we're such a good couple, and no one else has like had like the same kind of like collaboration or like uh, how easy it was for us rather than everyone else. And she was just like, yeah, we've been together for a while, and I was like, this isn't even real. <laughs> This is all fake. And then as this was going on, two dolphins followed the boat and were coming out like a movie. Like, this is all well and fine, but I'm not in a right, this is not right for me. This is not a place, I don't think I'm here. I think I'm in limbo. This is like a perfect reality that should be happening to someone else, but I just happened to slip in there for that time. 
Um, so it was like this perfect moment with the dolphins and going back, uh, and that was like our last night. That was like the last, the last day. Um, we fall asleep. We that night wake up to go take our bags in. There's a snowstorm back in, so our flight gets canceled. We've got to stay an extra day in Miami. Uh, and that extra day, that's when like, the illusion kind of stopped. She was pissed. She was just so mad that she had to be there like anymore. As like that whole reality kind of shifted away. Um, we didn't really do much that day except like shopping. Uh, she went out uh, to anthropology. To, you know, every ex-girlfriend's favorite store. <laughs> um, she bought like this red candle that had this real intricate design kind of wrapped around it. Um, it had some sushi. She got sick, so she like stayed in bed that whole night. I took the bike that was in her Airbnb and I just rode around the beach for a couple hours. Um, came back, uh, just fell asleep. Got on the plane, went, didn't want to go leave. Um, and then, so I'm back home. About like a week, a week or so later, I'm uh, hanging out at a buddy's house, a friend's house of mine. Um, good mutual friend of mine, my ex-girlfriend at the time. Uh, we are just playing video games, shooting the shit, hanging out. I uh, go to, I'm like, going to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, wash my hands. And I notice he has a candle burning in there. And it's the same candle um, with the intricate design of my ex-bot uh, in Miami. And I wanted to say something to him at the time, but I didn't know. Like uh, about a month later at the past, I found out that she was kind of seeing my friend off and on towards like the end of our relationship. And I just had no idea that was even happening at all. So I was like staring at this red candle that was like, uh, illuminating that sink. And I was like, should I ask my friend about this? Should I tell him? Is it just all in my head? And I didn't end up saying anything to him, but eventually I found out, found out later. And now I'm not on speaking terms with that individual. Though I wish I would be. I wish I could reconnect with that friend. He's moved. I have no idea where he's at. Hope he's okay. Um, but that was just an experience for myself where I really realized that I do need to start taking care of myself better. The people that I do want to allow to be in my life, uh, I need to show them the same like attention and passion as they are caring for me in that situation. Um, and that candle thing with a friend, that was just, I don't know, it was a storybook ending for a little cherry on the top for, I don't know, how you're supposed to feel, friends, situations, life in general, as it throws you many, many curveballs. And, uh, hey, that's going to be the end of my first story for sharing. Thank you guys for letting me share that with you. Um, you guys ready for your next speaker? Every single Tuesday night down at the New Movement for Sandbox with Rob Gagnon. Everybody, Rob Gagnon! that 
because I don't need him to be my dad. I know it sounds like the end of the story. And I don't need to be his son. <laughs> but there's so many points in uh, my life where I, I know we were laughing about something and it's hard to tell if uh, anyone else would be able to relate to this. So tonight we'll find out. Um, my parents got divorced when I was around like four years old. Uh, and I still remember um, playing with a little toy truck on the top of uh, the steps at my mom's house, what we were out doing at mom's house. My dad had like a suitcase pack, which is weird, because he had a lot more stuff than a suitcase. But he's still carrying it over to like his goodbye to me. It's very stereotypical of him uh, looking back on it. But he had, he had a suitcase. Uh, I thought you appreciate it, sir. Uh, he had a suitcase, like a stereotype. And he's like, well, I'm not going to be around for a while. I'm uh, going to another, go to another, another home. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> And, and, um, and 
get to see all their cool, weird stuff that they had in their basements and watch how we talk to people. Uh, and I, I would eventually go out and be a preschool teacher for many years, and I would talk to people the same way I remember him talking to people. And I think this was a big point in my life where I started to inform myself about like presenting myself to other people. Um, but then there were other times we were just enjoying ourselves. Like we would go to McDonald's for lunch because uh, it's simple and it's an excuse for him to eat McDonald's. <laughs> so, so I'd be like, chicken nuggets. And he'd be like, oh, so great. My favorite meal, a Big Mac. And so we'd go through the drive-thru and then we would park uh, like uh, perpendicular if I'm still uh, thinking math the same way, um, the drive-through window where people are picking up their food, and we do like a, a mystery science theater thing. <laughs> with like, oh good, my chicken dinner. <laughs> it was awful. We shouldn't have done it, but it, it was it was close, and we were laughing, and we were friends, and it was great. And you don't always get to be friends with your parents. Some of you have parents, maybe, where you're always friends with them, and you wish you could be a little more parent-daughter, parent-son. And some of you have uh, the opposite of that, and, and balance, obviously, is important. And I don't know where we fall on that spectrum. Um, there's another time where we were driving to go uh, fishing, which I think again was just him like acting out stereotypes of father-son stuff that he thought we should do on like a Saturday. He's got me uh, because I don't like fishing. <laughs> like, we're going fishing, you proclaim to the empty house. And, and like, oh, fine. And we get in the car, and uh, there was this really great um, guy that had like cheap worms. I don't know. <laughs> way off on the warm market. He didn't know what he was doing. We robbed him blind. We went to this man, and I remember two big laughs that day. One was, um, we were driving there, and I was singing along to, I think, like, Queen or something on the radio. They were getting very high-pitched tones, and my dad started laughing. And so eventually, after like for the course of a minute, I realized what he's laughing at, and he's like, "Yeah, I, I like, I love, that's so funny when you do those high-pitched tones." And so, until we pulled up to the tackle shop, I would just, I was just going, oh! and I was like seven, so we thought it was just like something about it was so funny to him, and I appreciated that that I was doing something that was super funny, and I was in control of it, but he was still laughing at it, like. I don't know, it was an odd dynamic, very nice. And then we shared a laugh when we got to the bait shop, and the, the guy that worked there, um, he didn't speak very good English. He was, he was from some South American country. I, I, we couldn't tell where. I was seven. wasn't me to figure this out. <laughs> and I remember my dad asking him a lot of questions, like, because we didn't fish a time. He's like, well, what about this one? Like, you know, what's good around here? And like everything we would ask him, uh, we'd be like, what about this? And he'd go, it looked like a bitch. And he was saying it looks like a fish, but he kept sounding like he was saying it looks like a bitch. And we used to watch R-rated movies, so I kind of already knew what that word was. And so we just ended up cracking up, driving home, like, oh my god, that guy kept saying, bitch, you know, what you mean to him. Boy, that was so funny. And a week later, that guy was busted for uh, uh, running a drug ring, uh, which we also had to laugh about <laughs> years later until I could find out what drug rings were. Uh, probably why he didn't know what to recommend for fishing. 
But we had, we were always kind of cracking each other up. It was sometimes at other people's expense, whether it be mine or him. Sometimes, like it, it wasn't always about other people. Like sometimes, uh, I remember one time we went to this place called Marriott Alley. It was a great diner, and um, we loved going there. It almost felt like this. Like it's very much like a home in a way. And the people just seemed like people, like, I don't know. Sometimes you go to like an Arby's and you're like, these are all Arby's people. But like, you like, come to a place like this, you're like, well, this is an odd mix, okay. I don't fit in and no one else does and I like that. Right, this is good. And we were at Marion Alley's and there was a, a, a place called Wild Bills right next door and they would sell basketball cards and little trinkets at this hardware shop and I love basketball. We would bond over getting these cards together and we'd always go afterwards to get a pack of cards. So I knew I had that to look forward to. And around the point in the meal where we ordered, my dad again being very like in the basement trying to measure somebody's uh, oil heating equipment, like he's very charming, like really showing me how to present yourself in public to a stranger. And he's being very, very personable. And my stepmom's there, my sister's there, my older sister. And we order our drinks and they're on the table. And our food hasn't come yet. And we're having fun, we're laughing, we're playing games. And his arm goes like this. And he knocks my soda over and it falls on the table. The ice going everywhere and it all spills on my lap. And it makes a loud noise on the floor. Just everything coming in like dripping and the ice dropping to the floor. And everyone goes quiet for a second because it's this kind of environment where that would happen. And uh, my dad, my dad goes, Jeez, bud, what'd you do? And then he thinks, oh, I have so many packs of basketball cards. Don't worry about this. And to this day, that's something we still laugh about. It's definitely worth it to me. Um, even if somebody was laughing, even if somebody in the family was laughing at me, like we all took turns, it was okay. But I think probably my favorite one is the one where I come out to be the butt of the joke. Um, probably in like fourth grade, getting a little older, trying to be cool. I remember, uh, I like that show Martin, and his friend Cole wore a backwards like Kangol hat looking thing, and I got one of those, and my dad was furious because he, he knew I wasn't Cole. And he didn't even know who Cole was, but in his heart he was like, stop trying to be Cole. Why are you trying to be Cool. Like, hey, Rob, you're not you. And so I was trying to be cool. I, was, I, I wanted to, I wanted to like kind of evolve into something that probably wasn't as close to my father. Uh, and we used to always go to the track and we'd go for a run, my sister and I, and just kind of sit walk around and play in the grass and wait for him to finish. And he finished his run. I'm getting a little too old for this now. I'm probably resenting him a little before even asking me to go to the track, but I was a little comfortable saying no. So we're leaving the track, and I think he's probably trying to entertain my sister. Like, she's five years older than me, so we're really at the point where it's like, all right, Dad, we're not going to the track with you anymore, and we feel bad, but it's just not the case. And so he, he finds, he's got this underwear, uh, stick, just my underwear stick, and I, it must have been in the trunk or something, but like I wasn't paying attention, and all of a sudden he's running around with my underwear and stick, and he's going like, oh look, a strange boy's underwear. <laughs> he's trying to make 
my sister laugh. And I had a wiping problem when I was little. Oh, oh shut up, some of you still do. <laughs> so, so it was like, I, I was embarrassed when he was like, oh, looks like there's a couple stains in there. It's like, I'm like, fuck this, bro. I'm
A&M, and it's like organization day, every organization has a table and a flyer and a banner, and they have people standing out there and they're going, hey, come come see our, our thing, talk to us about our organization. So you look around and you try to find organizations you're into. And I looked over and I saw these two very attractive young women standing at this booth, and then I looked away and I tried to forget about it. <laughs> We've all done this. You've noticed somebody attractive, and then you go, okay, I'm with my mom. I'm not going to think about it, right? Yes, right. So that's the moment I'm in. When my mom goes, you should go talk to those girls. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, there's no way I'm going on. I go, I don't even know what the basement committee is. <laughs> what the hell is that? So uh, I knew my mom was going to throw a scene in the middle of this crowded place, or worse, walk over and start talking to these women for me. Oh. <laughs> that guy over there knows exactly what I mean, right? That, I, you know that moment, dude. I go, I'll do it. And I go over and I talk to these two very kind women. And they're very nice and they're very generous. Turns out, the, turns out the basement committee is a small organization that gets local performers, not the big bands, local performers, to come and they set up opportunities for these guys to perform. And these are people from all over. And it's just if you've got a guitar or some other instrument you can bring, they'll set up at, at a little fountain outside of our big student union. They will set up a microphone and an amp and they will put chairs out. And I think it might have been Joey in another version long, long time ago. Because these people sounded really nice. And the taller woman, she was actually the chairman of the committee. And the shorter woman, she was actually the secretary of the committee. They hated having to be the MC. They hated having to go up and introduce the next act and talk in front of the crowd. They said, that's the vice chairman's job. I've been talking to him for three minutes, and they said, would you like to be the vice chairman? <laughs> I'm thinking what's gonna happen if I say no. My mom's standing behind me. So I go, yeah, okay, <laughs> yes, exactly. And I'm like, ah. So the first time I get out there, Somebody else, this guy named Patrick, sets up all the chairs. He sets up the sound system. He puts the mic for the guitar and the mic for the singer. And then if there's dual singers and performers at the same time, he sets up those mics. All I had to do was walk up and go, hey, give a hand for these guys. Or, hey, here's our next performer. Psst. No worries. I might get a date. This could work out. So I do this. And then I hear these musicians and they're brilliant. And I think, what a great gig. So the next week, Friday, noon, I'm back. This time, I know some of these guys. So I introduce them, I say, oh, this guy's got this one song you're gonna love. And after the set, he goes, Paul, don't, don't tell him that. I might wanna work on some different material. I'm like, all right, all right, no worries. So then it became a game. I would try to remember who they were and what songs they did. And then when I go up to be the MC, I'd tell everybody what song I love that they did. And those guys would remember my name. I didn't realize they were not liking my name. <laughs> not wanting me to be the MC often. But that's what happened. Now, I was at AM from 80 to 85 before I took a break. Which means I ran out of money and I had to figure out how I was going to continue my education. So I joined the Army. So people do. 
and I thought this would be helpful, plus I was still punishing myself for dating the wrong woman. And there is, short of prison, no better thing you can do to punish yourself than to join the U.S. Army. Any, any soldiers in here? Okay, good. Alright. I was really worried. I was like, oh no. Oh gosh, dude. Sorry. Uh, but seriously, it felt like a kind of punishment for me. I, I was not a disciplined person when I came in. And when I got in... Did I mention I was a philosophy major again? <laughs> I got into Princeton to study physics, but mom said that was too far away. So it's possible I just hate my mom. <laughs> and then when I went in the army, it was kind of a punishment for her too, so that worked out. <laughs> and then when I got into the army, I kept asking these really hard questions, like, why are we here? <laughs> why, are, why are we in West Germany, and why is there a border? <laughs> it was a long time ago, y'all. There was a West Germany. <laughs> I absolutely hated the army. I absolutely loved everything about Germany. I was challenged by the military. Turns out they kill people. That's like part of their job. And I was an infantry soldier, which meant the top rank of what I would do would be to kill people better than my buddies. I didn't much care for the job, and I got a job, an alternate job pretty quickly. You guys would know it as an HR rep. We called it S1. And so in S1, I would just fill out reports and do status information and provide this stuff, and it was very, very dull and boring. Nobody signs up to do this, so they always have to find somebody to do this gig. So I got the gig, and I'm pretty satisfied with the gig, but somewhere along the line, one of our guys shoots a guy in the back who's crossing the border to Czechoslovakia. He was ordered to do this. Turns out this guy was a spy. Now, I'm just raising some money to go back to college. It's peacetime, 1985 to 87. I didn't want to kill nobody. I had a couple of friends. They were officers in the military intelligence unit in this too. These guys played Trivial Pursuit with me. I'm the guy who brought the Trivial Pursuit game. I took it out with me to the field. I took it everywhere because this was a way we could talk and not be soldiers together. When I heard about this guy being shot, I ran down to the S2 shop. Now the military intelligence shop has the big vault with all the secrets in it, all the plans we're gonna use if they invade us or we invade them. All of that secret information is in that vault. My guys are sitting at the desk. One's a captain, I call him Captain Christian because he was a good Catholic. And Lieutenant Yale, because he went to Yale. And I keep asking myself, what are you doing in the Army? Anyway, if you want to talk ethics with anybody in our unit, these are the guys to chat with. And I went in there and I said, listen, Captain Christian, you're a good Catholic. How do you reconcile thou shalt not kill? And especially how do you do that if you're given the order to shoot somebody in the back as they're climbing a fence to get away? And he said, that's a really tough question. And before he could say anything else, I said, I don't think I can do that. I heard Captain Yale get up, and I thought for sure I was going to get in trouble. He put his hand on my shoulder. And the captain explained how sometimes we have to understand 
information that can kill other people we have to accept that they're a weapon. And that weapon can hurt us if we don't hurt them first. And I can't tell you that solved all the problems for my head, but for that moment I was okay. Until I heard Lieutenant Nutjob, who was in the vault and we didn't know, come running out. And he's yelling at me, you're going to get court-martialed. You're going to hell. You should not be in the army. How dare you even think that? And he said a lot of other really mean things. I had left myself completely open and vulnerable. And Captain Christian was still sitting down. And Lieutenant Yale had literally moved between me and this other lieutenant. And he's just standing there. And the captain gets up from his chair and he steps up to the lieutenant in that job and he says, you, you know where we are right now, right? He goes, yes, sir, we're S2, we're military intelligence. He goes, you understand that everything in this room is a secret, right? Yes, sir. If you heard something you're not supposed to, you may not speak of it outside of this room. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Dismiss. I thought for sure I was going to go to prison. I thought I was going to get killed. I thought that guy was going to come every day after that. Every time I saw him, I had to give him a salute. And the rule is you hold your salute until the officer responds. He never responded. And I would let that go once we broke eye contact and I would pass him. But every time I knew if I did, I would get court-martialed for that. I successfully got out of the military. I am actually proud of my service and proud that I did what I was supposed to do. And I'm very grateful I never had to shoot anybody. Thank you. Something that feels good, um, you keep 
doing it, so I would like feel so guilty about like watching porn and enjoying that, um, and, and also loving Christ. Um, but I, I took my purity vow when I was 15 years old. Um, spoiler alert: I broke my vow. Um, and in my church, we didn't do like purity rings. We did these um, pearls. They were a pearl that you wore um, just as a symbol of your purity. Um, I don't have that pearl anymore either. Um, but a couple weeks after I took my vow to God, um, I was in I was in an English class and I looked down in between uh, my feet and there was a ring. It was like it was seriously like some Lord of the Rings shit. Um, I still wear it. I will never take this ring off when I get married. This is like my ring. So I was I thought it was a sign from God. It was like my purity ring. Um, it just meant so much that there was like um, a symbol for, for my love for Christ and that my body was going to be, you know, saved for the man that he had created for me. When really on the inside, I really liked ladies a lot too, but I didn't want to tell God that either. Um, he knew though. He, uh, he knows all. Um, but then as, as like high school goes on and again you find stuff that feels amazing, I also started to smoke a bunch of weed. Um, oh man, I would go so high to youth group. And it, it helped my praise so much. <laughs> I didn't see a problem with it because it really, I did feel more connected and I just, it felt very natural and, and smoking weed helped my anxiety. So I just thought it was this like huge positive until my youth pastor was like, you can't come to youth group stoned anymore. And so then I came to that crossroad of, do I do what feels good, or do I continue down the path of God? So I was like, all right, God, see you later. <laughs> I'm not going to feel bad about reading lesbian erotica anymore. But uh, anyway, down my, my like, road of sin, I met a gentleman. Uh, his name was Jeb. He was a Mormon who got kicked out of the army. So I immediately fell in love with him. Uh, and we, after the few days of dating, decided, you know what I should do? I should probably lose my virginity to this dude. So I did. I lost my virginity on a couch that looked like the Married with Children's couch. Um, it was like that color, like the color of the blinds, and it was really rough and like, See that 2021 was playing <laughs> like a whole. Yeah. I close my eyes and I'm like right back there. But while I was losing my virginity, it hurt, and I knew that it was supposed to hurt, but I didn't know like how bad it was. It actually did hurt. So I did what I had seen in porn, which was just act. <laughs> Alright, this is the time, it's gonna feel good because 
and it just kept hurting and it hurt so bad. So I was like, all right, it's time to go to the doctor. So I go to the gynecologist when the gynecologist was just my pediatrician that I had seen like, my entire life. She's the lady who, when I went to her for anxiety for the first time, was just like, oh, you've always just been so old for your age. Quit worrying. I was like, no, I have like real anxiety. And she's like, there you go, kiddo. Uh, um, that's probably why I started smoking as much weed as I did at the time. Um, so I, I go in for the exam. We try to get through it, but it hurts so much. And her eloquent way of telling me what, this, what she needed to say, she said, if you were an Indian woman, you'd be worth a lot of corn. <laughs> that is what my fucking doctor said to me. <laughs> what she meant to say was, you have an abnormally thick hymen. <laughs> That's what should have come out of her. <laughs> uh, but my dowry would have been high back yonder. Um, so the cure, I don't know if you guys know this, the cure for abnormally thick hymen is not riding a bunch of horses. Um, it's to get it surgically removed. So a team of doctors took my virginity. <laughs> I got snipped and I got clipped. And it actually it made it made a lot of sense that um, you know that it, everything always hurt down there. Um, like I, I tampons always bothered me a lot. And I also do you guys remember Spencer's? They sold these big vibrators. <laughs> And I was like, oh man, I got one of those. That didn't even, not even that much. And I was like, no, thank you. Um, so this, man, all right, back to the purity stuff. During this time, when I had to get my abnormally thick hymen cut by a team of doctors, this is my story, y'all. Um, so embarrassed. I felt like so ashamed because I really genuinely thought that God was punishing me for having sex. That I had taken this like purity vow so seriously and that I just gave it away because like something felt good because you know youth pastor didn't want me to come to youth group high and I was like fuck this. I thought I was being punished and I I remember thinking, like, oh, it's so stupid, like, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> um, but really, it, God was always with me, and Jesus was always with me, because, like, it is such a blessing that's such a diverse. <laughs> <laughs> Joey for having me on. Um, you all look fantastic. It's very like calming 
space. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be uh, very open. I'm not going to try and be too funny with you guys. Um, I, uh, I'm a control freak. That's that's a big thing in my life. I'm, I'm obsessive. I'm not compulsive. I'm lazy. But I am obsessive. Uh, I obsess about things a lot. And I think a lot about control. And, um, and I think the, 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 the time in my life when I became uh, a control freak, I uh, I was a bully. Who was the neighbor bully in their life? Happens, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I was bullied, like, uh, I was I was later a teacher in my life, so I, I did a lot of research on what bullying is. Like, there's a difference between a kid being like, Ugh, you know, a little jab in the ribs, and then being like, oh, he's mean to me for a second. There's a difference between, like, systematic bullying that happens. Um, and uh, I, the, the type of kid that I was, because uh, later when I was a teacher, I developed uh, a very robust taxonomy for all adolescents. Uh, and I was what we, I, I would call a loud nerd. Um, I was a nerd who didn't know well enough to just keep his mouth shut. So for like all of 1998 and 1999, I was just talking about getting a dreamcast. So that was it. And like that's a thing that you, like a quiet nerd knows to keep to himself. So I'm gonna go ahead and just quietly enjoy my Sega console in my home. Uh, and, and, and I don't know what it was, um, like, but for some reason, uh, you know, I I was a I was a, a weird little kid, um, and I. I was I was a I was a victim, um, and I don't latch onto that as a title, but it's just it is what it is, and, and kids picked on me pretty hard, and, and I and I became a lot more quiet. Um, I used to be like a kid who did cartwheels and armpit farts and stuff, and now I'm a thirty year old comedian. And, um, and, and, I, and I stopped doing all that, and I just became a real quiet kid. Um, and I still suffered a lot, and and I made probably uh, like the most the most terrible conclusion that someone can draw in their life, which is, well, I guess if I had more control, I guess if I weren't so worthless, I would, people would probably treat me better. Um, and then I moved, and that's like the control freak's dream, is to go recreate his identity somewhere else, right? So in my taxonomy for adolescent youth, there is a, uh, you know, there's a loud nerd that was a, and then there's a type that's called the All-American, I call it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody from America, just a, just a title. Um, and that's like everybody's dreamboat, right? Like I wanted to be a dreamboat. I wanted to be a, a guy who people looked up to and I was like, I'm gonna go be that guy somewhere else. Um, and I went and I tried to do that uh, and I, you know, you, you, you can't be somebody that you're not. Um, so everyone, when I was growing up, because I was a taller kid, was like, do you play basketball? Um, which immediately I was like, no, I'm wearing a shirt with a cartoon T-Rex on it. <laughs> I don't do that. Uh, and I still have that, I still have those moments in my life now where I'm trying to engage in like, uh, in typical male discourse. Like a, like a guy is like, where'd you go to school? I'm like, oh, what do you do? Like a Longhorns fan? I'm like, do you think Ghostbusters 2 has merit? <laughs> So, um, I still do that. Uh, I'm more confident in it now because I'm like, oh, I'm trying to be a loud nerd again. But, uh, but yeah, 
was like, I was going to play basketball, because um, I was a tall kid, and I was like, I could be good at basketball. Uh, you have a, a body that is small, which it's like, that's that's a very small component of the game, right? <laughs> You could be all sorts of things physically and still be very bad at the thing. Um, but control freaked me. I was like, I'm in control. I'm going to be an All-American, uh, which means I need to be good at sports. So I'm going to be good at basketball. And so I moved to Texas when I from, from Goose Creek, South Carolina, when I was in like eighth grade. And I was like, I'm going to be a good basketball player. And I mean, I someone, I picked up a basketball. I didn't even know what to do with it. Right? It was just like tossing it like a baseball. Um, and and, I, and I, I worked a lot at it. I practiced a lot. I played a lot of pickup games and stuff. And I was like, I'm going to do it. When I get to high school next year, I'm going to be on the basketball team. Uh, in the midst of all this, I was still trying to recreate my identity, and I was still failing miserably at it. I had, I had, like, not bullies per se, but I had, like, enemies. I had people I didn't like. Um, you know, like, people who, like, helped you on your first day of new school, and they're like, hey, come sit with us at lunch. And then you go to the table, and they're like, oh, seats are all out. I don't know what we're going to do about that, right? And that's, like, such a terrible operational logistics game to play with a child. But, man, does it work. <laughs> feel terrible, like, oh, I guess if I were good enough, there'd be another seat there, magically. And I couldn't just pull another one up, that'd be inconceivable. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, so I was still fighting against that, and there was a kid, I remember all my bullies' names in a real, like, Steve Buscemi, Billy Madison way. Uh, I'm not, I swear I'm not going to murder any of and, and you know, part of the part of the story is like finding out there's good in everybody because I I have Facebook searched some of my bullies. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of AJ back in South Carolina who is now a youth pastor. I'm sure he's not a piece of shit now. You know, uh, one of them back when Facebook became a thing, this girl named Veronica contacted me and was like, "Hey, I remember us being really bad to you in, in junior high. I'm really sorry about that." And I imagine she had just watched Billy Madison. Was, was in, in her mind, was watching me cross her name off. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I did find out that, that people are good, and that and the, in the moments in your life when you have the least amount of control, you're the weakest, you're at your lowest, and that's when people show themselves to you. Right? So I, I worked hard for a year and a half. Basketball tryouts came around. The coach for the basketball team had run all these summer camps. I'd gone to every single one, my poor mother was paying for all of these, you know, despite the fact, probably knowing in the back of my mind, she's like, this is not my son, like, my son, like, wants to be playing pretend and, you know, boring and playing books. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, so I went out and I did tryouts and, and I thought I was doing okay. Which I think at any point in any audition or trial, if you think you're doing okay and not like great, you're not gonna do well. That's, you know. Um, and so it's like the last day of tryouts. I know this, and and the coach comes up to me, kind of puts his hand on my shoulder, and he's like, "Hey, uh, you've been working real hard there, Nathan, but uh, I just don't think this is gonna work for us." Um, if you want, like, I could give you, like, a, 
like kind of like a stat stats position. Like you carry on a clipboard and like write down numbers and stuff. Which ugh, does that feel terrible? Uh, and all this time, I'm, I'm grasping on my my 14 year old masculinity, and I'm holding in the ugliest cry I've ever had in my life. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, you know, let me, let me think on it for a little bit, Coach. Let me, let me think on it. I'll get back to you. Um, and I go into the boys' locker room, which is empty at the time because people are playing basketball. Talented people are playing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I unleash just a weep, just a sob, like, like you're not even breathing correctly type cry. And, um, and, and, I, and it's just all coming out because I, I lost control. Like I had tried and, and I had failed and I was having to like put together my whole life in front of me. I wasn't going to be an All-American anymore. And, uh, and I hear the door open and it's, and it's this dude Blake who, I, who was not kind to me at all. Uh, and you know, this was, this was what, 19, this was 2000. You know, he had like a Tommy Hilfiger polo and frosted tips on Lance Bass. <laughs> like, I mean, a very, a very kickable ass. <laughs> um, and I'm sitting there just sobbing in, in the locker room. And I'm thinking like, now I'm gonna get it. Like, this guy, he's got ammunition for the rest of my life. He can tell people I'm, I'm whatever. And he comes and he sits next to me and he puts his hand on my back, gives like the old, like, you know, the old, like, homophobic rub, like, <laughs> and then just walks out. Um, and I was like, you know, there's a sliver of good in this world. Like, that, I, 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 because I, I wanted to be in control and be like, I was bracing myself to be hurt, and then someone was really kind to me. Um, and a couple of years ago, a friend of mine contacted me and was like, hey, did you hear about Blake? He was uh, robbing people's garages so they could sell stuff and get money for heroin. You wanna check out his mug shots? And I was like, no man, Blake's a good guy. <laughs> She had this fucking bullet right here. 
blue mole, like right there. And the story that she told us was that her brother shot her in the face with a pizza gun when they were kids, and it went in this side of her eye. And like, we've been in class for five minutes. <laughs> Computers are coming, and we can use computers to reverse weather patterns to prove the 
because she fed that shit. She's probably dead. Um, but, you know what I mean? And we're kids, right? We just did this. Her spelling lesson was like, okay, at her church, this guy had carved a beautiful altar for the communion, and he put the water or whatever. And, um, and he, he carved remember, and there said, so we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, except he didn't put in the second M, so it said remember. <laughs> That's her spelling lesson. <laughs> she did this shit all the time, and it was like, it was kind of fun because we didn't really know what was going on. But okay, so one day, it was lunchtime, and it's after, you know, the uh, we come back from the cafeteria, the bell rings, and she's like, class, here's a worksheet, everybody work on it. Daniel, I'll see you in the hallway. And I'm like, okay. So I go out in the hallway, and she accuses me of fi- flipping off sixth grader April Rice. Now, some perspective. I didn't have the fucking ball to flip myself off in a mirror. You know what I mean? <laughs> I couldn't do it, let alone like to a sixth grader or anything like that. And so I'm in the hallway, she accuses me of this. I said, I didn't do it. And she goes, you can tell the truth, or you can go to the principal's office. And I'm nine years old, so I'm cornered. You know what I mean? Like, well, I, I am telling the truth, but I don't want to go to the principal's office. And so I just start crying. And she just sits there and she goes, do you know who lies hurt the most? And I, she wouldn't stop asking me, do you know who lies hurt the most until I answered God? And she goes, now clean yourself up. And I just sat there with nine-year-old tears like flying down my face. And I looked at that bitch and her crooked wig. And I saw that bullet in her eye. This is how you get shot in the face, bitch. Thanks, everybody.